Hello, this is Congressman Jim Clyburn, and I would like to welcome you to my podcast, Clyburn Chronicles. I've always been a lover of history. I see this platform as a way to connect history with the politics of today. This is so important because as Judge Santiano once said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Each episode, my guest and I will have a conversation about the lessons of the past, the politics of the present, and how we must learn from those experiences to help shape the future. Thank you for taking time to listen, and welcome to Clyburn Chronicles. Welcome to another edition of Clyburn Chronicles. Today is a very, very special rendition of these chronicles. I have as my guest uh, someone that I know you're going to absolutely enjoy, Charlie Rangel. Charlie Rangel uh, served in the Congress for, I believe, what, 45, 46 years. Uh, was a real icon. In fact, we had a nickname for him in the Congress. Uh, I uh, cannot remember exactly who gave it to him, but he was called the chairman of the board. And we don't have a board in the Congress. That means Charlie was unto himself. Whenever we wanted something done, Charlie was the go-to guy. Now, he made significant contributions to this great country before that almost half century that he served in the United States Congress. He grew up on the streets of Harlem, New York, but he went off into the military as a very young man, fought and was injured in the Korean War. He came back from the war went and finished college, went to law school, started his profession as a prosecutor. He then served uh, several years uh, in the assembly, New York assembly, before running for Congress and started on sort of an upward trend. He knew early what committee to get on, and he stayed on that committee. He learned the ins and outs of the Congress, and then he made history, becoming the first African-American to chair what many people consider to be the most powerful committee in the United States House of Representatives, the Ways and Means Committee. That means that is the committee to figure out the ways to do things and then find the means to get them done. So today, my friends, we have a real living icon, the former member of the United States House of Representatives from New York and my good friend, 
Charlie Rangel. Charlie, thank you so much for agreeing to be uh, with us on Clyburn Chronicles today. And I want to just yield to you now to uh, say whatever you would like to say. And then I got some questions for you. Jim, I have to take a deep breath after that uh, introduction. You know, I retired in uh, 2016. And since then, I've been trying to tell my wife, Alma, who's sitting next to me, that I used to be somebody important. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm glad she's there with you. Thank you so much. Uh, she and my late wife uh, yeah. were good friends. Uh, Emily used to search Alma out every time she came uh, to Washington for something. So I thank her so much for being with us today also. Well, you know, I mentioned the wives, they were such an important part, important part of the Congressional Black Caucus, not only being organized as a spouse, but we had assumed so much responsibility uh, nationally, since so much was expected of us, that going around the country, going to Africa, going to the Caribbean, going where the African-American population was, and their perception that we could make a change, that we were their, their hope, their, their lightning rod for change. Only the wives understand what we've been through and allowed us and believing in us the opportunity to do so much. That's, you're so right about that. Now we must let our uh, listeners know right up front. The real reason I wanted you here today is because this is the 50th anniversary of the Congressional Black Caucus. And you are one, were one of the final founders. And of course, uh, you and two others still live today. And you were the one that I uh, could um, get to be with us today. And let me just say, Walter Fauntroy was one of the founders. Uh, he was a delegate from Washington, DC. And both of our friends, your great friend, William Clay, uh, who uh, I spoke with about being here today. And he was having uh, a little bit of a, a speech problem and didn't think uh, he would be able uh, to speak fluently for this program today. And so he demurred, but wanted me to say, Charlie, uh, how much he's thinking about us uh, and uh, about you especially. And I want you to just tell the listeners, what was going through your minds 50 years ago, 1971, uh, and tell the listeners exactly what was behind the founding of the Congressional Black Caucus. Jim, if you tell me the only people that can challenge me is Walter Fontenot and Bill Clay, that's easy for you to do. <laughs> Because it is difficult to be honest about what you were thinking when 435 people managed to get to the House of Representatives without each other's help. 
through their own different roads, through their own obstacles, through their own reason for being. And arriving there, believing that they have the answer and the ability to meet and to come together and to find out that you are dealing with a group of Indian chiefs that really don't appreciate you as much as you appreciate yourself. <laughs> we all are surrounded in our congressional districts by people who think that we're the greatest to serve them and represent them in the House of Representatives. But when you find 34 others who believe the same thing, it is really what is on your mind when you get there and how did it work out? Uh, the truth of the matter is that I never really felt the experiences of other black folks in this country because I was raised in the Harlem community which had a language of its own, a communication of its own. There was no world in our mind, those that were raised by people without a formal education, no challenge to our thinking because we only were dealing with ourselves. As I said earlier, I had never met a white Southerner in my life and it restrained me now over 91 years old to think of a white Southerner in Harlem. Having said that, my only experience with Southerners was in the army and that as a formal thing where the military and MPs protect you from any direct attack against the animosity. And I was first as the youngsters say woke when I went down to help some black folks get registered and found out through people like Andy Young and, 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 and uh, John Lewis and people like you who was living there all of your lives that all of my experiences on the battlefields in North and South Korea was being experienced by people who look like me in the United States of America. And trying to say to John Lewis, why would you sacrifice your life knowing the hatred that's invited in the Congress? I never thought when I marched uh, from Selma uh, to Montgomery that it was any more than me showing up with the orange vest and behind the flag. But when I saw people that were supporting the people that were on the line, putting their lives on the line every day, and then found out that there was a movement going on, as there is one going on now, that anyone over 40 years old was a generation that didn't understand that this was no time to be negotiated. This was no time for nonviolence. This was a time for change. It was black power. And if you didn't believe it, see what happened to, uh, to Malcolm X, to Martin Luther King, to the civil rights kids that were down there being murdered. Uh, 
Emmett Till. And it reached a point that the congressman, the black congressman, who in my opinion, the record is going to show, had the most exciting legislative career in the history of the Congress, Adam Clayton Powell. He was a non-player when he was considered the congressman of Harlem, New York, the United States, and the world. And it never was my intention to be a part of that party. And I was very active with my friends, Dave Dinkins and Percy Sutton, Basil Patterson, and trying to do what I can on the local and state level. But as every local official knows, you need to work with the federal government. You need a member of Congress. You have to act like you got a member of Congress, even if she he or she is not in communication. And what happened to Adam Clayton Powell is going to be for the writers of history because when he made the mistake of making a remark against a so-called woman, a bag woman violating the law off of the floor of the House of Representatives where he was protected against any lawsuit and he was sued outside and he ignored the lawsuit and papers were filed on him and for not showing up and not cooperating, hundreds of thousands of dollars he was charged with beautiful punitive damages. And Jim, something psychologically banned his thinking about fighting this and he found recluse on an island called Bimini and yet thought he could be a member of Congress in absentee. And it didn't work today and it didn't work then. And when people say that I beat Adam Clayton Powell, I make it abundantly clear. I filled that seat that the great Adam Clayton Powell left and went to Bimini and the record is abundantly clear that I have no ill feelings. But his absence was from the civil rights movement. His absence was he wasn't at the uh, Freedom March. His absence was he never worked with the NAACP or Malcolm X or, 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 or uh, Martin Luther King. And so it wasn't just my district. When I got to the Congress, I could feel people that have been there, five, six, seven, eight, nine, but there was a vacuum of Adam Clayton Powell's leadership because no matter what was going on legislatively and politically in the house, most people in America only heard of who as the black congressman, Adam Clayton Powell. Now that really didn't stop people like Charles Diggs from recognizing historically that their role were expanding. And even though there was a more senior there, albeit a very quiet member of Congress named Dawson from Chicago, it meant that Charlie Diggs had to fill that vacuum in the Congress and bringing together the half a dozen members and asking the question, why are we here? 
And that meant that you were dealing with a half a dozen members from different parts of the United States that were trying to find in what they call a select committee, committee a common cause to be together. And so when the four members, uh, Dullin, uh, Mitchell, uh, Rangel, uh, Mitchell, Rangel, uh, the fourth There were one. people, uh, George Collins from Illinois. Yeah. John when Collins. We came, our presence was seen and mm -hmm. we arrived. There was a paper plan that was already drafted and it did not include Adam Powell because I was there. And so it became a need to formalize the thinking and to see how we could best represent our districts and the country by finding those areas that we had in common. And that was the first time that I really found out how different the United States of America was and to this day, how different it still is. And so we came together, we discussed things together, and we finally put together our act. And I was fortunate because just six, seven, eight years ago, Percy Sutton, who preceded me in the New York State Assembly, had started forming a Black and Puerto Rican caucus in Albany. And all hell broke up because colored folks didn't want to be called black. And Negroes didn't want to have any part of it. And the Puerto Ricans didn't want to be identified with us. And the, the Republic was saying, are you leaving the country? Who needs it black? You know, we got to have a white. And after all of that worked out, I knew then that what the black members of Congress was doing was a prelude to what had already been done. The thinking was already there, and that became the very of our caucus. Yeah, that's the background too, but I want you to share with our listeners something else that I think would be uh, interesting. The catalyst uh, that uh, woke you guys up was a simple request of the then president of the United States to meet with you and um, uh, so we can share with him uh, the agenda that you had developed. And then that gentleman, uh, I might call him that, Richard Nixon, refused to meet with you guys. Uh, and uh, uh, you all got his attention by boycotting his State of the Union. And uh, that forced him down off his high horse, and then he met. Uh, do you remember much about that meeting? I remember everything <laughs> about that meeting. The president was going around the world indicating what a great country we had and what a great president he was and how he was going to bring all of Americans together. But we knew of Nixon 
But better than that, we knew of his vice president. <laughs> his vice president probably was the worst foot the Republican Party, Spiro Agnew, put forward, who was arrested for a variety of things. But his unadulterated hatred for Black folks was so open that it wasn't just a refusal of Nixon, but it was him excited about the fact that we had the audacity to ask for a meeting. And we had to pause because as in the last few years, I couldn't fathom how a former President Trump could have the audacity to say and do things and get away with it. I never knew the hatred of support that Nixon would have in telling 13 members of the House of Representatives that he just wasn't going to meet. And that happened to be politically the best thing that ever happened to us because with an uncontrollable vice president running around attacking black folks all over the country and the president saying, did I really say I wasn't gonna meet with them? Mm -hmm. And then comes the State of the Union. It didn't take a political genius to say, you don't wanna see us, Mr. President, and we don't want to see you. Our absence from that meeting was the creation of the spirit of unity that caused so many people that was wondering, what were we up to? Where religious leaders came out and said vicariously, they're speaking for me. We're heads of civil rights organization that wondered what was our real agenda nationally, where white folks and other folks who respected the constitutionality of the Congress as opposed to the executive branch, finding that we were being insulted. Well, we knew then that the day after the president had to find some way and we had to know how could we take advantage of the president's big political mistake and that we did. And you really did it well. Um... And for 50 years now, uh, what you started back there in 1971, uh, 13 members of Congress, 12 gentlemen and one gentle lady. Uh, and today we've grown to 56. Did you ever believe back then that you would uh, one day see 56 African-American serving in the United States Congress? Jim, I tell you that the whole story of America could be told when a visitor comes in and comes to the floor of the House of Representatives and see that block of black, brown, and yellow on one side of that house. And then if they cannot believe that, to roll their eyes over to the Republican side 
of the house and to see the stark anger and absence of color there, it's now it's the story of America. And in a sense, I think that in my strange way, I can thank Trump for saying all of the things that so many Southerners and, and prejudice and hateful people were hiding under the rock and they just couldn't stand to see an Obama. And then when Trump came, they're all out. And as a result of it, for the first time, we see that reconstruction didn't work. And if we don't bring the house together, then foreign sources could threaten our security. And whether it's Biden or anybody else, unless we can bring this and make this the United States, our democracies are on a very shaky foundation. And if 56 people just walk in and don't say anything, what a powerful statement that is. <laughs> yes, and we now being chaired, he served, I think, after about the uh, fourth session uh, after the formation. I think he served as chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. So I'm <laughs> proud to have uh, followed you some years later. I look back now, I chaired the caucus, I guess, was what? Man, it was 20 years ago. Uh, and uh, having followed in your footsteps, uh, I feel proud to have done that. I want to ask you uh, a little bit about um, uh, when you all um, pulled together your first budget. How did, uh, you know, you, you saw the budget being uh, made every year and presented. When I got to Congress, uh, the Congressional Black Caucus had already started presenting its version of the, of the budget. And what is so interesting that I found about that is uh, we don't ever get uh, much vote, maybe 100 people will vote for the budget. But when you see the budget that they finally come out with, <laughs> you say, wait a minute, we told you that at the beginning of this process, uh, but nobody uh, understood it when we were doing it. But after going through all these machinations and through the committees and over to the Senate and back, it's interesting how uh, that budget looks so much like uh, uh, we started out with, and if they had just listened to us, uh, we were in a much better place. Uh, what do you think about that as a former chair of the Ways and Means Committee? We can't do that stuff without the Ways and Means Committee finding the ways and developing the means. We had the idea because as a group of Americans and black politicians, unlike so many other of our colleagues, that was our priority. We first wanted to be considered as Americans to, to get a sense of equality and to participate. It wasn't just who was going to be famous, but how collectively could we take the power that we did have and make something out of it? And we knew that individually that we didn't have the capacity to make a dent in the armored wall that had built up since slavery. But what we did know, and Charlie Diggs had thought it out before I got there, to, to get the members to accept positions on the different committees and to bring the thoughts of the committee together 
so we can ask when it's put together and where do we stand in that? One of the greatest things that we were able to do as members of the Congressional Black Caucus was to create the Joint Center, a black organization of, of brains that were able to help us to take the instruments of the Congress and include us in it. In every committee that we had, we had these political scientists help the legislative body to help us at, with just 13 members to do what the power of over 400 members were able to do. And of course, with each session, we improve with our ability to have the resources to do it. And so quite frankly, uh, our budget reflected what should have been because we didn't have the fear of being defeated. We wanted a better America because we knew only that way could we really be uh, better served. It's, it's hard to have people believe that we're more patriotic than they are. <laughs> you know, but if you are going into a fight and one is fighting to become champion and the other is fighting for his or her life, you can bet your life there's a high degree in the spirit to make this country work. We right. got no place to go, no place to write home to. This is it, they brought us here. They cut off all of our ties. And so no matter what we're talking about, someone had to say, and it was the budget committee and we had Bill Gray that was able to bring together, not just the thinking of black members on the committees, but to bring all of the members together by saying, taking care of our needs of health, education, making us more productive was good for the country. You know, I, I'm glad you brought that up. You know, I mentioned Bill Clay at the beginning. Bill Clay, oh, you became chair of Ways and Means. Uh, Bill Clay was chair of Education and Labor. Uh, that was uh, a big, big deal. Ways and Means, a big deal. Lou Stokes, uh, Appropriations Committee. Uh, Ron Dellums became chair of the Defense uh, uh, Committee. Uh, it, it was just, uh, you know, people look at us now and say, well, y'all got this many chairs. I say, well, y'all, we standing on some shoulders here. Don't forget Bill Gray. Bill Gray. Bill Gray was whipped before me, and he was chair of the budget committee. Exactly. Uh, and um, uh, uh, I tell people all the time, I'm the second whip. Bill Gray uh, was whipped before I was. And um, so this is not new stuff. Uh, a lot of times people uh, think nothing happened before I got here. A whole lot happened before we got there. And as I said earlier, I learned so much from you. I learned from Lou Stokes sitting on the Appropriations Committee watching Lou Stokes. Uh, I learned a lot from him. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I used to hang out in the evenings with um, uh, with Bill Clay. Uh, you well, didn't know, you have a friend named Dan? I'm sorry. Didn't you have a friend named Dan, Jim, Jim Daniels? I think his name was. Oh yeah, Daniels. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but that, he he joined me and Bill. <laughs> <laughs> 
Bill Clay, you know, I sat down. Jim Daniels, uh, uh, we call him Jim Daniels. His real name is Jack. Uh, <laughs> and Jack was always there at the, at the table with us. But this is how uh, we function today. And a lot of times I talk with Joyce Beatty, the current chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. And she talks about you guys all the time uh, and how much just sitting around observing. Uh, I don't know that you guys know what impact you had on all of us. I remember uh, when we had the little uh, dust up and people didn't want um, uh, Ron Dellum to be to chair the defense committee because he was a peacenik. Uh, you can't have a peacenik chair in the committee. Well, you know, he showed them. And not only could he chair the committee, uh, but he became a big favorite because he was there, as you said. He was there to help preserve this great democracy. That's what Dellums was all about. Uh, and when he retired from Congress, uh, he had periodic events in his office for me. Uh, and uh, like you said earlier, he coming from California the, out west, you coming from the, the northeast, I'm coming from the south. Uh, there's some cultural things we had to work out. <laughs> some Jim, cultural differences. Jim, we've had the opportunity and the blessings to work out those cultural differences because we needed each other. Mm -hmm. Our white majority in this country, they don't have to get together. They were born to look like they should be together. But the intellectual exchanges that we would get from our weekly meetings, each one was like a session of learning something at a graduate school. And our sessions on the floor, you could sit there and just listen to someone else's discussion and walk away and say, I didn't know that. And someone would look startled and say, well, why should you? Uh, you're from Harlem. You don't know what's going on in Birmingham. And the whole thing would be with the whole country that if you take a look at our 56 members, take a look at the democratic agenda, take a look at what can make America strong. Uh, it's not uh, Whistling Dixie, it's preservation of the idea that they had in drafting this experiment and uh, we're here to make certain it works. Right. And I'm glad you, you used that word, the experiment. That's the second time you use that word in uh, talking about our democracy, because that's what it is. This is an experiment. Uh, and, Let me tell and, you why. Let me tell you why I use that word. Right. Please. This is a rough one. Any group of people across the Atlantic wipe out all the people that are living there. And then on top of that figure, that they can go to another continent and take human beings and hold them in bondage for the purpose of economic profit. And then come with a constitution saying, we the people, excluding the people who don't look like them, in order to have any sense of making it work, since we can't go back home, 
and the so-called natives that were here will never be able to have their sovereignty restored, I think it's easy to say they were only trying to find out what works and it was an experiment. And we have an obligation to make up for what they were not thinking about or thinking about it wrongly. Absolutely, and, and, we're, and it's still an uh, experiment. We're still uh, trying to get this thing perfected. Uh, and that's, you know, I always say, uh, one of the things that we have to keep in mind is that our country uh, does not move on a linear plane from point A to point B. We always weigh in back and forth. The country goes over to the left for a while, uh, then it goes back to the right for a while, then it goes back left. And this great experiment you're talking about is always trying to stabilize the movements in this country. That's what it's all about. And when we it's have, going, we go right ahead. The winds against our infancy. You know, we're 400 years old. And I remember once, decades ago, the prime minister of India was on one of our national programs. And there was a big public open dispute between our countries. And she said, well, America is such a young country. And they're, so, <laughs> and they're so rich. They have so much money. And even though our countries have thousands of years of existence and, and history, we have to be kind to those people to be able to help them to understand their responsibility. <laughs> I shook my hand. It was like a grandmother talking to a child. But again, our history is one that needs a lot of repairing. And I think in the long run, it makes us stronger. I'm glad you used that word as well, repair. You know, I uh, often think about uh, Alexis de Tocqueville's uh, admonition that America is not great because it's more enlightened uh, than any other nation, but rather because it has always been able to repair its faults, repair its faults. That's what makes the country great. Uh, the extent to which we can come together uh, on the floor of the house, 435 uh, plus five others from the, uh, the territories and 100 over in the Senate, working on trying to find ways to repair our faults. COVID-19, has exposed some significant faults in our system. Our healthcare delivery system needs repair and our education system needs repair. And that's why the legislation that we're dealing with now in the Congress is so important. That's why it was important for us to say infrastructure going forward gotta be more than roads and bridges. It's gotta be more than ports and rail. You gotta talk about water and sewage. We gotta talk about uh, uh, broadband, uh, all those are infrastructure issues that uh, most of which you didn't have to deal with when you first got to Congress. You never heard of it, broadband, internet. And when the internet first came out, we called it the information highway. But you know, so, we didn't have the opportunity to train young people to deal with the job opportunity of infrastructure, of climate change, of all of the things that now a new society and a new world brings, 
when we think about repairing and just open up our educational system and instead of having locks on the door, open so, it up and think, we need you and we don't give a darn what color you are. We compete right. against, against people that don't want us to exist. Absolutely. And so it, it's a great, great opportunity. And you guys to put this budget together, I can see it is not for those who have been left behind alone. It's for this experiment to really work long beyond this decade so that not only are we strong, but that we continue to do the right thing with our international strength. And somebody with a beard said, a house divided cannot stand. That's right. If there ever was a point of non-combatal division, we're living through that now. That's quite true. And I think that uh, as we celebrate the 50th anniversary of the existence of the Congressional Black Caucus, we think about uh, what the tribulations were uh, at the time of its founding uh, back in 1971. Uh, a president insensitive uh, to the dreams and aspirations uh, of the constituents that you all represented. He was only 13 back then. He's now 56. That's, but man, 56 from 13, um, four times. Let me, let me ask you this. At one of our weekly lunches, did you ever think that one of us will become president of these United States. <laughs> and, and now vice president. That's right. Yeah, you know, uh, these things are very, very uh, interesting. But I think, as you said, talking around that table over lunch, sitting on the floor, sharing experiences, knowing what it's like to grow up black in Mississippi and Alabama, as opposed to growing up black in Harlem, New York, there's a totally different experience. And when you learn how to reconcile those differences, uh, and we do reconcile our differences, we have them. Uh, we thrust them out in those meetings. Uh, you, uh, you can be prepared to run this country. Uh, and I think that uh, people are beginning to see that. Uh, and I am so proud uh, of where the caucus is today. I'm so thankful for you guys who had the vision uh, to come together uh, 50 years ago. And although you and I will not be around when it's, uh, for the next 50 years, hopefully we will have contributed to it being another 50 years. And we do that by standing on your shoulders and that knowledge helping me to get strong enough shoulders for somebody else to stand on and they'll keep it going. So Charlie, I'm gonna thank you uh, for spending these uh, few moments with me. Thank Alma for uh, keeping you on the straight and narrow. Uh, and I want you to say, uh, whatever you would like to close with here today uh, as we 
celebrate these 50 years, quite frankly, of getting to know each other. That's exactly right. And I, I really want to thank you of acknowledging the fact that 50 years ago, uh, 13 people had an idea. It wasn't based on any new and exciting experience. It was just that we knew, no matter what cultural differences we had, that we had a stronger responsibility that prevailed and was the fabric of all people uh, that had been prejudiced against. And so therefore, uh, after 50 years, we find that progress has been made and it proves that progress has yet uh, to continue. And as things get rough sometimes in the experiences that we're having now, we can only look at the strength of those people that fought behind us to see how fortunate we are to be able to recognize the struggle in front of us and continue to move forward. So there's no one listening to this pod that cannot say that you can't give up, you can't give out, you can't give in, because as long as we're together, uh, we will move forward. And Jim, when everything gets rough at home and washing dishes and take it up, I said, you know, I know Jim Kleinman and my mm. wife. I'd be done. Okay, you can take a break. But <laughs> get out of here. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you, Elmo. Thank you, Charlie. Uh, I know. Uh, I'm gonna call Bill and report to him uh, that you did him proud today. Oh no, I'm gonna reach out. I'll find that rascal. Do that. Do that for me. Yeah. Thank you, sir. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you have just been a part of another edition of Clyburn Chronicles. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of Clyburn Chronicles. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know by leaving a comment. And don't forget to subscribe to my show wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Congressman Jim Clyburn. Thank you.